Hello, and welcome to another Friday Five episode here on the Agent Survival Guide podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Rupel, and this is our weekly list of five things you should know about. So much financial news this week. That really dominated the news cycle in advance of the Fed meeting notes and policy adjustment this week. But before we get to that, we've got to talk about mortgages. Number one on our list this week, the new mortgage rates for conventional home loans backed by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. On Monday this week, Federal Housing Finance Authority changes to Loan Level Price Adjustments, or LLPAs, went into effect, and when I say changes, there were quite a few of them. Loan level price adjustments refer to costs incurred by a home buyer when taking out a conventional home loan, and the criteria of those fees varies for each buyer. Things like credit score, down payment, the type of home, and other factors go into the calculation of mortgage rates. The new changes that went into effect this week include brand new mortgage rates for conventional loans based on credit score and down payment, as well as applying some of those changes to additional LLPA product feature loans. We'll start out with the credit score changes. Previously, the floor of the LLPA matrix sat at a credit score of less than 620, and the ceiling at a height of over 740. Between those two thresholds, scores could fall in one of six categories, separated by a spread of 20 points. The new LLPA matrix lifts the floor to a credit score below 639, while the ceiling was raised higher to over 780. Between those two new thresholds, there are now seven categories, still separated by a spread of 20 points. Let's move on to down payments because the changes that just went into effect also adjusted the down payment thresholds. Both the old and new matrix have 10 categories for down payment amounts, and the floor threshold has also been lowered here. So previously, mortgage rates were the same for loans financing less than 60% of a home. With the new matrix, two new categories have been added to include rates for loans financing less than 30% of a home's value and from 30.01% to 60% of a home's value. The old and new matrix down payment categories line up until we go over the 95% mark. Previously, there was just one category— lumping loans financing more than 95% of the value of a home into the same category. That now breaks off into two categories. First, loans financing 95.01 to 97% of a home's value, and then a new ceiling category for loans financing more than 97% of a home's value. And then within the matrix of those two variables, the mortgage rates either increase or decrease. The general idea of revising the LLPA in the way the FHFA did was to make home buying more affordable for those who typically face discrimination in the housing market, either because of race, income, or both. The idea is to lower fees for those with lower credit scores, 
making an affordable home loan less prohibitive than it previously might have been. Those with good credit scores will also still benefit, and regardless of credit score, borrowers tend to get a better home loan rate with more money down, similar to other loans. Now, are there outliers? Yes. For example, people with more middling credit scores. For example, a 745 who wants to put a 20% down payment on their home would qualify for a rate of 0.875% on the new matrix, while on the old matrix, they would have qualified for a rate of 0.5%. But switch that to a 788 with the same 20% down, On the new matrix, that borrower qualifies for a 0.375%, while on the old matrix, they would have qualified for a rate of 0.5%. And then just to give an example on the lower end, say our borrower has a score of 645 and would like to put 20% down on their home. Previously, they would have gotten a 3% rate, while on the new matrix, they would qualify for a 2.25% rate. In addition to changes in rates and the rate and down payment category thresholds, the FHFA also applied the new down payment categories to the LLPA additional product feature loans, and it looks like they consolidated a few of those products. We will be linking to those changes in the notes, including the old and new LLPA matrix charts for reference. Number two, the week opened with news that the FDIC had taken control of another bank. This time it was First Republic Bank that failed, and J.P. Morgan Chase won the weekend bid to come to the rescue. It is the third bank failure in two months, but also worth noting, the failure at First Republic Bank was the second largest failure in U.S. banking history. They reportedly had $229 billion in assets at the time of failure. The worst bank failure in U.S. history was back in 2008 at Washington Mutual, who had $307 billion in assets at the time and was also bought out by J.P. Morgan Chase. Given what these recent bank failures have done to the industry as well as both investor and consumer confidence, it could be time for a change. And that's just what the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation proposed on Monday this week. Currently, the FDIC insures bank deposits up to $250,000 per account. If an account holds more than that amount, the FDIC does not currently guarantee the ability to pay an account back in excess of those funds. But when a bank becomes troubled financially, and that news makes it to investors— Anxious investors tend to start pulling their funds out of the bank. That situation can go south very quickly, depending on how much the investors pull and the assets the bank has on hand. The FDIC proposed a few different ways to deal with future bank failures, giving three different options. Option one would be continuing to offer limited coverage as they do now, up to a certain limit by ownership rights and capacities, 
but possibly raising the amount of money from $250,000 to a higher limit. Option two considers unlimited coverage, meaning the FDIC would change their policy to offer unlimited coverage to all depositors. And then option three, targeted coverage. In this case, the FDIC would set deposit limits based on account type. Business payment accounts, to quote the example in the FDIC release, would, quote, receive significantly higher coverage than other accounts, end quote. And also, according to that same release, if it were up to the FDIC to choose, they would pick option three because, quote, targeted coverage best meets the objectives of deposit insurance of financial stability and depositor protection relative to its costs. These proposed options would require congressional action, though some aspects of the report lie within the scope of the FDIC's rulemaking authority, end quote. We will definitely be keeping an eye on this proposal and reporting back with any new developments. Number three, on Wednesday this week, the Federal Open Market Committee wrapped up another rate-setting meeting. The result? interest rates are going up another quarter percentage point. That means that the Fed's interest rates are now a target range of between 5 and 5.25 percent. Wednesday's increase was the 10th interest rate increase since the Fed started raising rates back in March of 2022. It is also the first time interest rates have climbed above the 5 percent mark since 2007. Prior to Wednesday, there was a lot of speculation around the pending announcement, not so much in the vein of if the increase was going to happen, but more like what's going to happen next. Given the recent collapse of First Republic Bank, some analysts were hoping that the Fed would announce plans to back off from future rate increases. In his notes after the meeting on Wednesday, Fed Chair Jerome Powell indicated that a pause to interest rate increases could be appropriate when the committee meets again on June 13th and 14th. But he's not setting that statement in stone. As far as rate cuts, futures markets had projected reductions in the Fed's interest rates by the end of this year. Powell noted that certain conditions would have to be met before the Fed would consider lowering interest rates. He said, quote, We on the committee have a view that inflation is going to come down not so quickly. It will take some time. And in that world, if that forecast is broadly right, it would not be appropriate to cut rates, and we won't cut rates, end quote. Also worth noting, he cited the run on Silicon Valley Bank as more of an exception than the rule, saying that it was, quote, out of keeping with the speed of runs through history, and that now needs to be reflected in some ways in regulation and in supervision, end quote. Number four, we are just one month away from Apple's Worldwide Developers Conference. The conference kicks off on Monday, June 5th, and runs through Friday, June 9th. The keynote event is scheduled to take place online and in person on June 5th, 2023 at 10 a.m. Pacific time, so 1 p.m. for those of us here on the East Coast. 
I look forward to this event each year for two reasons. One, it's a great way to see what's coming from Apple over the course of the year. Announcements are usually more software-related at the WWDC event, so we learn about all the new features coming to the iPhone, iPad, Apple Watch, Apple TV, and, of course, Apple computers. And then two, I love seeing the marketing Apple puts together for these events. From their sharply produced promotional content to how they showcase products and features on screen with a presenter, and then, of course, how they choose to segue and transition between segments. There's a lot to take in visually, in addition to the actual Apple product information. As we count down the days to WWDC, the more leaks and rumors we tend to get. So far, we can pretty much confirm that we'll get information on new operating systems for all Apple products. That is usually a given at these events, like I mentioned earlier. Also confirmed, the announcement of an AR-VR headset. There has been a lot of talk about that, with some reports suggesting a rush to launch an Apple product. Other announcements that I've heard a substantial amount of chatter about. The new journaling app that Apple has been developing. I have read about it being compared to the day one journaling app. Hard to say how it will stack up until the release. Apple does have a habit of creating native apps when the opportunity presents itself. In my mind, I'm not sure that I see the robust functionality of a paid app like Day One comparing to a native app that's free, but given Apple's penchant for subscription services lately, well, that might be more of the direction in which this new journaling app is headed. Other announcements include a few rumored features and updates for Apple's health app. I've read about the possibility of an iPad app, a mood tracker, and the ability to manage vision conditions like nearsightedness, which I am nearsighted, so I'm intrigued by that, whatever that means. If I come across any more interesting rumors or confirmations in the coming weeks, I'll be sure to report them back here in addition to relaying official announcements in our June 9th Friday Five episode. Number five. On Tuesday this week, the Writers Guild of America went on strike. According to industry experts, it could be a long one. The last strike occurred at the end of 2007 into the beginning of 2008 and lasted for 100 days. The main issues last time around involved writers for animation and reality shows, residuals on DVD sales, and compensation for new media, which at the time, writing for the internet and other digital tech. This time around, residuals are again involved, but the industry has sprung forward with a whole lot of new media that was not exactly defined or even in existence in 2008. Mini rooms are also an issue. The trend of streaming platforms hiring a smaller-than-average team of writers for a limited time, rather than a fully outfitted writer's room for a traditional broadcast show. 
And then there's the recent question of what about AI? How will that factor into negotiations and contracts? So far, late night television and Saturday Night Live have been the first productions to go dark. As far as other productions, if they have scripts that have been finalized or they've already recorded episodes, they can continue working on and releasing those projects. And if you're wondering, like I was wondering, what does a strike mean for my favorite podcast? Well, That depends on if the show has writers represented by the Writers Guild of America. If so, and depending on the type of material they write, those writers are part of the strike and have been called to stop working. Reported by Reem Makari for PodPod.com, Jason Gordon, WGA East Director of Communications, did make some distinctions for podcast writers. Quote, Members of other divisions that work on nonfiction or news podcasts are not affected by the strike, but are still required to abide by strike rules in terms of writing for Hollywood, end quote. So depending on the type of podcast, your favorite might not be affected. For those like me who gravitate towards scripted and fiction podcasts, Not necessarily great news, but not necessarily terrible news either. Again, depends on the type of podcast, depends on the writers. Only time will tell how long the strike will last. But from what I have read so far, there is a lot to be discussed, and we are still in the very early days. We will certainly keep you posted on news and negotiations as well as shows, movies, and podcasts that are affected. That is all we've got for you this week. I hope you have a great weekend. Stay healthy and stay safe out there. And we will see you next week. The Agent Survival Guide podcast is a production of Ritter Insurance Marketing, an integrity company. This episode was written and produced by me, Sarah Rupel. Script editing and fact check by Tina Lamaru. Podcast design by Urban Rivera. Artwork by Vivian Zhao. Follow along with us wherever you like to listen.